0: populations become eligible to receive the vaccine. We know that we're going to encounter other challenges, new challenges, new barriers to vaccine access. Governor Tom Wolf visited Pittsburgh this week to talk about how Pennsylvania is trying to vaccinate hard to reach populations. We are giving ourselves a little time and we have a lot more supply and we're planning not to have the surprises, the log jams that we had the first time around. We think we can do this. We'll also talk about why Pittsburgh City Council plans to scale back its eviction moratorium and look at why federal officials proposed adding more beds to a Berks County detention center. It's Friday, April 9th, and this is Pittsburgh Explainer. I'm your host, Liz Reed. First up, WESA health reporter Sarah Bowden is here. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Liz. You covered Wolf's visit to McKeesport this week. What happened?
1: Yeah, so Governor Wolf uh, went to Bethlehem Baptist Church in McKeesport, where the county was opening its first vaccine clinic in the Mon Valley. Now, there are other places in the Mon Valley you can get vaccinated, but this is the first county-run vaccine clinic. Um, and this clinic uh, is uh, targeted to serve more hard-to-reach, more marginalized populations, and they estimate they can do up to 200 shots a day.
0: Can you talk a little bit about both the county and the state's approach to reaching these hard-to-reach groups?
1: The county understands that uh, it's important to bring vaccine to people. The vaccine should chase people. People can't chase vaccine. And that's because there's a lot of uh, very real, very difficult structural issues to overcome. I'm thinking technology, transportation. The state also understands this and is um, working with uh, managed care organizations to try and get people in the Medicaid program and the Medicare program to be vaccinated.
0: What are managed care organizations? What does that mean?
1: Yeah, so managed care organizations, um, they're essentially insurance companies that contract with the state, um, and this is unique to Pennsylvania, but they contract with the state to manage the Medicare and the Medicaid programs. And the idea is that um, by giving these programs a set amount of money, and because they specialize in managing healthcare because they're essentially insurance companies, or they are insurance companies, uh, they'll be better stewards of the money and be able to deliver healthcare services in a more um, fiscally efficient way.
0: Okay, so speaking of Medicare, you know, one of the issues you looked at this week is bringing vaccines to one particular vulnerable group, which is homebound seniors, uh, residents of Um, senior high-rises, which we have all over Pittsburgh. Can you talk about what you found in that reporting?
1: Well, senior high-rises are a really big issue because these folks that tend to have a lot of mobility issues, they tend to be very elderly, and so maybe they're not as comfortable with technology. Also, these people tend to be lower income, so they have fewer resources. Therefore, it's been really difficult for these folks to get vaccinated, even though many enthusiastically really want to get vaccinated. Because, you know, they've been stuck in their apartments for over a year and that's isolating and can be really devastating and they're bored and they want to live their lives.
0: There was this big effort facilitated by the state to get people in long-term care facilities vaccinated, recognizing that these people are particularly vulnerable. Why aren't we seeing such a coordinated effort with other vulnerable groups like residents of senior high rises?
1: Well, I think it's important to note that uh, more than half of the COVID nineteen fatalities in the states were at long term care facilities, like nursing homes, assisted living facilities, those sorts of places. And these places, frankly, were sort of, I guess, a perfect setting for COVID outbreaks because they're communal. They take the people who live there are medically fragile and elderly. But at the same time they're also more visible because if you know like a dozen people have died in a facility who are elderly and who have family that want to advocate for them that's kind of hard to ignore with senior high rises um i i think people are tend to be more isolated because they're taking care of themselves more also other vulnerable groups might include homebound seniors people experiencing homelessness incarcerated populations, people who don't speak English. These people are also at great risk, uh, but because they're more invisible, there's been less of a push to get them vaccinated.
0: It would seem smart to me, to reserve the one dose Johnson and Johnson shot for really hard to reach people like homebound seniors or people experiencing homelessness just because like of the logistics of it it doesn't have to be kept at super cold temperatures um, and there's only one shot you only have to reach these people one time I mean is that something that is under consideration
1: that's a thing a lot of people are considering and i've recently spoken to experts who specialize in getting folks vaccinated, um, are really involved in logistics of getting people vaccinated. And they say that this would be a really good idea, especially when, um, somebody, uh, is experiencing homelessness, so they don't have a regular address. And when you are experiencing homelessness, like you're not caring about getting vaccinated. You're caring about having a place, a safe place to sleep, feeding yourself and your children, the idea of scheduling a vaccine and then scheduling a follow-up vaccine is just like it's just asking a lot so the one shot J&J vaccine could make a huge difference
0: so i want to pivot a little bit and talk about this phased approach as the the phases are sort of coming to an end here we had this really slow rollout for the first 3 to 4 months of vaccinations and now we're like rapidly moving through the phases 1b one 1c one phase 2 then everybody Why is that?
1: I think a couple things are going on. First of all, uh, supply is increasing while demand, while still high, is decreasing. Also, this is just something I suspect, but I don't know uh, if it happened this way. But if you remember, a little after Governor Wolf announced that um, everybody would be 16 and older would be eligible for the COVID vaccine on April 19th, not long after that, President Biden made uh, the same announcement for the whole country. And so I suspect, but I do not know, that perhaps the Biden administration gave states a heads up.
0: Obviously, you, you said demand is kind of waning right now, and that has to do with who is eligible. But obviously, demand is going is to ramp back up um, as more people become eligible. Are there concerns about these more vulnerable groups, the hard-to-reach groups getting squeezed out? as demand ramps up.
1: Absolutely, I think there are concerns. It's hard for me to say though, because I think sometimes situations are so individual. Whether or not these folks would be getting vaccinated anyways, with the current system, and I say that not because they don't want to get vaccinated. They do want to get vaccinated, but because our system is set up in a way that's not equitable. And so um, the same barriers that they're encountering now when it comes to technology, transportation, uh, if you're an hourly worker um, and the closest vaccine you can get is five miles from you and you're taking public transportation, like those are all like really big deal barriers that um, will probably be exacerbated by the fact that the state is opening up the vaccine to everybody 16 and older on the 19th. But to get these people vaccinated, we don't necessarily need more vaccine. What we need are targeted programs to help folks uh, connect folks to vaccinations.
0: Bowden, thanks so much for your insight.
1: Thanks, Liz. We'll be back after a quick
0: break.
2: If a new car is in your plans this summer, why not donate your old one to Pittsburgh's NPR news station? Visit wesa.fm slash cars to find out how.
0: And we're back. Ariel Worthy covers Pittsburgh City Council for WESA and is here now. Hey, Ariel.
2: Hey, how are you doing?
0: Good. How are you? I'm good. So what did you cover this week?
2: This week, Pittsburgh City Council, they actually voted on some amendments for the city's eviction moratorium. The moratorium basically bans or bars landlords from evicting people during the pandemic, specifically if it's due to people not being able to pay because you know they were laid off or there was anything kind of related to the coronavirus. Some of the amendments they made included lowering the fine. In the previous legislation, landlords could face up to a $10,000 fine if they evicted someone without just cause. Uh, and now it caps at 2500 They evict someone uh, without just cause, it's a thousand dollars. If they evict a family with children, it could be twenty-five hundred dollars. So um, that was definitely a significant decrease. Another amendment they passed was that landlords no longer were required to renew leases due to non-payments. So basically, the previous legislation said that landlords had to renew a lease even if someone didn't pay their rent. This took that out completely. The city is actually currently in litigation with some landlords over this legislation, which, by the way, is temporary. It will also go away after the city lifts its declaration of emergency due to the coronavirus. People still weren't satisfied with it, so they did sue the city over it. And um, Deb Gross introduced the legislation and these amendments, and one thing she did say was they were trying to make laws that were enforceable and defendable in court. So that was really their big goal with some of these changes.
0: Okay, so you're saying that they decided to amend the bill in order to sort of bat back these legal challenges.
2: Right, so one thing she did tell me was, you know, getting rid of that lease renewal portion of it was really difficult because it meant that there was a chance that more people could potentially be homeless, which is what they wanted to avoid, especially right now during the pandemic. Her whole thing was, you know, people need to stay home. And if they don't have a home to stay in, <laughs> that doesn't really help this entire situation. So so yeah, so her thing was, it was a hard thing to get rid of, but they had to, for legal reasons, basically, uh, they had to strike it out of the law.
0: What are tenants' rights groups saying about these changes?
2: So some people were saying that they felt that this really watered down tenants' rights and that it was the changes were unfair one organizer i talked with she said you know evictions are already kind of disproportionately they affect black women in particular especially uh, single parents Um, and this makes it even harder to defend them this they at least had some type of protection under the eviction moratorium but now there's a chance that they could still face you know homelessness or not, or not have a a place to stay now because of these changes.
0: You also noted in your story that people are being evicted right now. I mean, people are going to eviction court every day in the city. How come this moratorium and the CDC's eviction moratorium haven't been enough to protect people from eviction?
2: So some of these larger landlords, they're evicting people anyway, and, you know, they're just kind of paying the fine if they're being hit with one. They're finding somebody else to fill those those units and those spaces. So it's kind of like, unfortunately, some people don't really care about the moratorium, um, and they're kind of just focused on money um, in a time like this, which uh, Councilor Gross even said, you know, that's very unfortunate that there are people that don't seem to really consider what we are all going through right now and are just focused on getting their monthly rent. That's not for every landlord. You know, smaller landlords, I've been told that some of them are working with their tenants more compared to like some of these companies, so to say. So what
0: happens now?
2: The amendments have passed, so um, they are officially on the books now, um, but the city itself, they're still getting ready to fight this in court and see how it goes there is rent relief. That was one thing that Deb Gross did also emphasize is that there is rent relief available for both landlords and tenants for back payment and future payment. So um, she also encourages people to look into that as well.
0: Thanks for your reporting, Ariel. Thanks for having me. We'll be back after one more quick break. The Confluence goes beyond the headlines to introduce you to innovators and difference makers in the community and to engage in conversations about issues impacting our region, from education to social justice to government accountability. Join us for The Confluence, where the news comes together Monday through Thursday mornings at 9 on 90.5 WESA. And I'm joined now by Anthony Orozco. He covers Latino communities at WITF in Harrisburg. Hey, Anthony.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So uh, catch us up on what you've been reporting this week.
3: So I've been reporting on the Berks County Residential Center, which is one of three family detention centers in the country. Currently, no one is being held in that center. All of the families in that center were released in late February. And uh, we've been sort of in a holding pattern about what will happen to the center. And I have obtained a document from an ICE official That shows that the federal government has proposed an expansion of bed space in the center. So we may see more immigrants being detained in Berks County. What's still up in the air is whether that will be female adult migrants or families.
0: Can you also talk about there is a a white paper, a document floating around that I understand lays out what could happen with this facility. You are aware of its existence, but you haven't seen it.
3: So I got a hold of a public document where an ICE official, uh, sort of in an affidavit, they call it an attestation, which is a signed, sworn document where they are clarifying that one, Berks County doesn't have a copy of the proposal for what will happen, what may happen to the Berks County Residential Center. They also don't have a copy of the letter of support that they sent or that the letter of support is part Of that white paper proposal so uh, I and other news outlets have submitted right-to-know requests to get a hold of these public documents because these public officials took action on the center but without any sort of public comment or input so in this attestation it says that the proposal for the center is uh, the white paper proposal for additional bed space in the Berks County Residential Center and that was a key detail that Our commissioners here did not reveal to the public Um, a couple of weeks ago, commissioners said that they were proposed to take women or men or to continue the family program that they have already. And that's it. Bottom line.
0: How have people responded to this development that the center might again house detained migrants seeking asylum?
3: Obviously, there is a group of people, uh, a collection of organizations across the country and the state, 145 uh, at least, who are very vocal about their opposition to the center. So they hold protests, they call in, they uh, send in a lot of questions to the commissioners about this, and quite obviously, they're very upset that this center is going to be used as an immigrant detention center. Some of them advocate that uh, this could be used as a human services building. We do not have a public health department in Berks County. And some people are saying, well, what time better than now to establish a health department? And here's a building that you can use for a vaccination site or a COVID testing site. But then there's also a large majority of people who just don't voice their support for the center, who may not know about what the center is, or who are um, like two of our commissioners. more conservative, and maybe don't see anything wrong with it and support it. But it's sort of like silent support. Every once in a while, in the public comment section of their commissioner meetings, you'll have some people say uh, that they appreciate the work that the county does there.
0: You know, I understand the migrant families that were there were moved to live often with family that they already had in the United States. What was the point of closing this center or relocating all of these families if it's just going to be reopened again like what is the argument there
3: I'm not too sure that's the problem is that we don't get a lot of uh, cogent dispassionate and detailed arguments for the center which is kind of frustrating as a reporter I would I would love to have that uh, well thought out uh, sort of clinical explanation as to what are the benefits of this one clear benefit is that Berks County receives uh, around $1.3 million each year to lease out office space of this center to the federal government. So in a sense, it is a revenue stream for the county, and it was the first family detention facility in the United States, I believe, uh, here in Berks County at, in 2001 they opened this center originally for a number of Colombian families who um, were seeking asylum.
0: Now, we know that there is a surge of immigrants arriving at the border right now, many of them seeking asylum. Are, Are those people likely to end up here in Pennsylvania in this center?
3: Well, it's up in the air at the moment. Nothing has been made official. One thing that was or singular about the Berks County Residential Center is that it was the smallest of these family detention facilities so in Texas they can hold thousands of people Uh, here it's a 96 bed center so it's a very small number of these asylum seekers uh, that actually have come to uh, Pennsylvania so we may see more than 96 immigrants being held in uh, the Berks County Residential Center. But all of that's up in the air.
0: Anthony, thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you. That's the show for this week. Pittsburgh Explainer is produced by Katie Blackley. Our editor is Lucy Perkins. Thanks for listening. Let's talk next week.